four Bravo males entered a, a woman's house and she was killed. I've lost an aunt who was, uh, whose house was burgled into by, by robbers who then also murdered her. Hi, David. Thank you for having me on, on your podcast. And uh, my name is Hafsa Karim, and I'm from South Africa, uh, more particularly from Pretoria. Professionally, I'm qualified as an attorney and I've worked in management. I've, uh, though my passion lies with serving the community. So I joined a, a nonprofit organization called the Garden Social Services. Initially, what we used to do was go to the uh, public hospitals and uh, give them a, a meal for the day or fruit or sandwiches. And like that, we found that there were many abandoned people. So we started a, a home, a frail care for people who were in hospital and didn't have anywhere to go for aftercare. There's a big gap in the communities there because they don't have the luxury of primary uh, or pre-primary school, which is our early childhood development. They didn't have things like internet. So we started a homework center. Then we've, in fact, we've just recently built a, a visually uh, impaired center, a skill center, because we found that in one of our rural communities, there are quite a number of, of visually impaired, but unfortunately they have no activities. They have nothing to keep them occupied, you know? And then I'm also the chairperson of the Lodi Movements Network. It's a cross-cultural, interracial, interfaith group of, of various charities, but all ladies. And we do a project mostly within the Lodium community, which is where we all live. And then I'm also a part of an organization called the Knowledge Foundation, International Knowledge Foundation. And with that, we try and uh, encourage people, especially those from previously disadvantaged environments who are unable to secure uh, funding for further studies. So we try getting bursaries and scholarships for them. So yes, David, you're right. I am very busy and I do keep myself there. And that's apart from being a, a mother to three children and I do my own cooking and all of that. Well, I, I'm grateful that we've managed to have a little window of uh, opportunity to talk. I understand Laudium was a, was a township in the days of the apartheid government. In the apartheid government, the Indians lived in, in town, in, in Pretoria CBD, and they lived in a place called uh, Marabastat. It was not only Indians, it was Indians, Coloreds, and Africans who lived together. And um, when the apartheid government uh, looked, they established Lodium in, in 1961, I think. And what they did was they removed all the Indians from the Pretoria CBD and from Marabastat and put them all into Lodium. And uh, Lodium was attached to Lodium was a, a white area called Erasmia. And because of the number of uh, people within Lodium and the, uh, and the growth of the community, the, the, the population then spoke over into Erasmia, which then uh, many of the whites had to move. So the, so the character of, of Lodium has changed? It's evolved tremendously. Since apartheid's gone and since our government has opened our borders to foreigners, we have an influx of Pakistanis, India, Bengalis, Central and North Africans. And in Lodium itself, 
all the, the businesses, the, the small businesses have all been overtaken by foreigners. So they aren't really locals who, who have businesses any longer. Lordium, just for my benefit, is that classified as a township? The reason why the apartheid government referred to us as township is because initially there was no real facilities within the, the, the townships. They established townships for African people and established townships for Indians. People of color were placed in townships with limited resources, limited infrastructure. We didn't have a transport system. We relied predominantly on, on minibus taxis. So the bus system was mostly in, in, in the city and in the previously white areas, which is really sad, you know, because we were at a, at a great disadvantage. So um, what's life currently like in Laudium? Well, you know, Lodium used to be an extremely affluent community. Uh, the people of Lodium were predominantly business people and very successful business people, entrepreneurs, and uh, many professionals came out of Lodium. Though with the influx of the foreigners, as I told you, the demographics has changed. So many of our local original inhabitants of Lodium have moved on. We have a clinic, which is just a day clinic, and that is is used mostly by the people from an informal settlement, an informal settlement which has now been created on the outskirts of Lodium. We also have another uh, informal settlement. I'm not sure if you're familiar with an informal settlement, but these are tent shacks with no proper sanitation, no uh, basic human uh, necessities such as running water. And we have huge communities like that surrounding Lodium. And uh, unfortunately, you know, with the influx of foreigners, we've also had um, an increase in, in crime. And uh, the drug problem has always been prevalent in Lodium. We've had a, a drug problem. But now I think it has evolved in that we have more people because of, I think, I don't know whether it's the need or whether it's poverty, but we have more peddlers. And I think it has escalated and that has a direct impact on the crime because Remember, if you need your fix, you're just going to do and break in and steal wherever you can, you know. It's actually so sad, but last night we had a, an incident where four Bravo males entered a, a woman's house and she was killed. She was murdered last night. This happened last night in Lodium, in, in one of our most, uh, in, in on a main road of, of Lodium, on Jewel Street. And uh, that's the kind of thing that's happening. I've lost an aunt who was, uh, whose house was burgled into by, by robbers who then also murdered her. And this was like two years ago. So crime has increased. And, and also remember, it, I, it, there's no excuse for crime, but I think also you have petty criminals who out of need, some of them who just need to, to get their daily necessity or their food. You mentioned informal settlements that have grown up around Laudanum and, and various areas in uh, Pretoria. Who, who predominantly uh, live in those areas? Is it the immigrants, the, the foreigners? It is. It is the immigrants who are living in. It's, it's almost uh, equivalent to the refugee camps you see overseas. It's like the ones that you see on the borders of Syria. And many of them are in the country illegally. You know, they've just skipped the border and entered the the country. So they don't qualify for housing. They don't qualify uh, 
And that's the reason why they then all stay together in these informal settlements without running water, without basic sanitation, no toilet facilities, and, uh, and, 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 they, and they can't secure jobs. As chairman of, of uh, Laudium Women's Network and, and very active within the women's network and community in, in Laudium, has the change in society there had a particular profound effect on gender issues? I must be honest with you. I think there's always been uh, gender-based violence, but when a community is affluent, it's usually uh, swept under the carpet. I think we did have it, but it wasn't as exposed as it is now. And also with the poorer people, they tend to, uh, they have nothing to hide. They have no, there's, there's nothing, nobody to impress. Unlike, unlike when you have a more affluent community, you know, it's like what will people say? We can't expose this kind of thing. We, you know, we need to keep our, our, our status within the community. So it has become more prevalent, but it's also, I think, more exposed now than it previously was. The natural expansion is if there's more violence towards women and more violence generally, and there's more violence towards women, then obviously access to local healthcare becomes an issue. And uh, I think you said earlier that, that you have a, a clinic in Laudium. We have a day clinic and that's just for uh, usually mother and child care and, and things like that. And then we have a, a hospital which used to be, uh, which used to be a fully functional hospital. Uh, in the apartheid days, but that has become our um, primary healthcare facility in Laudium now. There's no x-rays, there's no um, surgery, it's just basic, basic uh, medical care. How far do people have to go to, to find an emergency hospital and for operations? I think the closest to Laudium is within the uh, an African township, which is about six kilometers. It's not too far. Uh, it's called Kalapong Hospital. And that's where most of the patients from Lodium are referred. Those are obviously all government patients, patients who can't afford medical aid because uh, those who can't, who can afford a medical aid, they use private hospital facilities. So you have two systems, private and a, a public one. But the private, you, you know, if you can afford it, you, you make sure that you, that becomes a priority. Unfortunately, it's not only our health care, it's, it's everything, you know. It's our education system, it's our security. We, I just told you, I stay in a gated community because even though we have police, we have an army, we still need to stay in a gated community and pay for security so that we don't have incidences like what happened last night in Lodium. Would you say Laudium is a, a sort of a microcosm of the situation that's happening throughout South Africa? It's definitely a, a microcosm of the bigger picture. You know, I remember the, the apartheid government and things. It sounds to me, from what you've been saying, that there's still division in South African society between the have and have-nots and uh, class, race, and perhaps even gender lines. There is. There's a huge disparity. With The have-nots have everything. They have more than they could ever think of. They have too much. And then the have-nots are really poverty-stricken. Some of them don't even have a, a meal a day. And uh, it's, it's, it's really sad. 
we have kids who attend uh, madrasa classes, which is Islamic after school classes. They are not Muslim kids, but the reason they attend is because they get a plate of food for the day. So yes, David, it's it's terribly, terribly uh, painful to see. So that, that that economic divide as well is is that along a racial line generally? I mean, what one gets the impression that there are quite a few rich uh, Africans. Yes, no, they are. Remember, after apartheid, we've had many uh, African people who've uh, done very well for themselves, who uh, who are in the super uh, tax bracket. But the bulk of our population, the bulk of, of, of our African people, are below the, the red line. They, they, in the rural communities, they are uh, people who, who are without jobs, people who just stay home. And when you said about racial, after apartheid, we've also had a lot of white people. Previously, there were no real white people who were poor, but some people who've lost their jobs and people who are unable to, to support their families who moved into Tinshek in, in a community of, of, of white poor people. And that's in South Africa, you know. It, uh, I think people always think that because it's South Africa, you would think that it's only African people. No, no. Especially now with COVID also, we've had a lot of people across the, across the racial spectrum who've lost their jobs, people who are managers, people who had top jobs, who are no longer able to afford their house payments, their mortgage bonds, their car payments, their, school, their kids' school fees. So it's, it's the sad reality. I think it's a, a good opportunity then to speak about COVID. But just before I do, is there a middle class in South Africa? There is, there is, but they're a very narrow margin. We have a, a, a thin line of, of the super rich. If I were to give it to you in a percentage way, uh, we have, say, 5% five, 5 of the community that's really super wealthy. And then we have about 15 to 20% who are middle class. And the rest are really poor people. Which brings us, obviously, neatly to talk about COVID. What measures have the government taken? We went into a level five lockdown at the end of March. And I think it was very wise of government to do that. Because when they did that, it was uh, a complete lockdown. Businesses were shut. It was only basic necessities that were active. And I think that really prevented the, the virus from from going crazy and also allowed for government to then establish the infrastructures necessary to, to the spike when it does happen. So I think government did very well. Unfortunately, wherever there's money, there's also a problem because we got a lot of funding and most of that was abused. You know, we had people who, who were in a position to assist others who didn't. But I think government did very well by implementing the, the hard lockdown right at the outset because that prevented the virus from spiraling completely out of control. So the downside is that many suffered the economic brunt of, of, of that lockdown. Did the government subsidize people who had lost work or who were losing income? Yes, we have an unemployment insurance fund in place and we had a thirds fund. So those people who were without a job and who were not getting any income from the employers uh, were able to access funding. And people who were at home, people who, who were not in a job, but who probably had you know, informal businesses, they could also access funding. It was minimal though, but what played a huge role was 
all of us as non-profit organizations, as community-based organizations. I think it was amazing. It was absolutely phenomenal how people came uh, to the fore and assisted those in need. Uh, in Lodium with the lockdown, we had various organizations we, who, who came to the party, who provided meals, cooked meals were delivered to people's homes. There were helplines where you could call and you could access whatever you required. People would attend to it. Grocery hampers were delivered to homes where people knew that there wasn't enough. Our community really, they, they rose to the occasion and they provided necessaries, basic necessaries. Simple things like bread was delivered daily to homes where we knew that there wasn't food. When you say South Africa received, received funding, is that specific COVID funding? Yes, it was. It was intended for COVID uh, use. It was intended for PPEs. It was intended for medical facilities. It was intended for, there were various reasons, even uh, food aid. Like I said, you know, <laughs> with so much funding available, there was bound to be some kind of uh, a criminal uh, have that problem where we're now facing lots of unaccounted for expenditure. You know, people who had... Uh, uh, who, who just took advantage. I, th- I suppose what you're saying is corruption. Yes, yes. I didn't want to say it in so many words, but yes. All the you know, it's, it's really, it's so sad when you see how these fat cats only want to pull their wallets and just continue growing. And, and yet, you know, it's your own people who are suffering, your own people who need you. And at a time like this, when you're able to assist them, and then all you're concerned about is your selfish interest, it's really terrible. Yes, I mean, it is sad, isn't it? I mean, from what you're saying about how some people saw COVID as a profit opportunity. Do you think the the pandemic has amplified the inequalities that we, we spoke about earlier? Definitely. Remember, the have-nots, those who are right at the bottom of the poverty line, it hasn't really affected them. I think most affected are your middle class because those are the people who've lost jobs. Those are the people who have lost a, a steady stream of income. Those are the people who, who send their kids to semi-private schools and who now can't afford it. So it has, it has created a, a huge, and obviously the poor people didn't have, and they still don't have. They depend on, 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 the, on the charity and graciousness of others. But it has definitely widened the gap between the, the super wealthy and, and your middle class. That's interesting, isn't it? As you, you observe, the people who have nothing to begin with are the least affected by a pandemic. It's just another thing that they have to deal with. Remember, it affected mostly people within the, the urban communities, within the business communities. So those on the farms and those in the uh, sparsely populated communities were not really affected by, by, by the pandemic. They were not exposed to it. When you were saying about the informal settlements, I imagine uh, the virus would spread very quickly through there. Oh, yes. Because remember, you don't have basic sanitation. You can't even wash your hands. How do you see the the future playing out in South Africa in, in the sort of the short, medium term, at least? Have you been to South Africa, David? The reason I'm asking you this is because it has to be one of the most beautiful, beautiful countries in the world. That's what I've heard. I have traveled extensively. I've 
I've really traveled extensively. I've been to the east, to the west, to the north, wherever. And I must tell you that South Africa is the most beautiful country. And we have the warmest people in this country. Our, our population, ah, when I went to the UK, I mean, you from the UK, and I was on the tube and I just smiled and these people thought they might crazy or what, you know? And in South Africa, that's what we do. We smile at each other. We have an amazing country. We have a beautiful population. We have such a diverse community and it's absolutely incredible. Unfortunately, the crime is increasing and the divide between the rich and the poor is, is just widening. And that is a cause for concern. And yes, I don't see a marked uh, deterioration in the near future, but it is obvious, it's obvious that it's only a matter of time before it gets worse. There is this thing, I, I remember reading something called the optimism paradox, I think it was, the kind of the gap between sort of private hope and, and public despair. What about your private hopes, Hafsa, for the future? I really hope and pray that we have good leadership, we have strong leadership, we have leaders with integrity, we have amazing weather, we have a beautiful country, we have the population, we have the youth who are able to work. So if we can just invest in them, I think we can really have a great, great, great country, honestly. It's, it's, it's our leadership. We need strong leadership. We need leaders who are not corrupt. We need leaders with integrity. If we have that, I think we're away.